I'm Joe Cadwell, the host of the show, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mike Rucker about his book, The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. The Fun Habit is a science-backed, actionable case for the importance of seeking fun rather than happiness in our daily lives. Mike argues that fun is a resource available to anyone at almost any time, yet most people are not having enough of it. His insightful new book reveals how intentionally increasing your joyful moments can improve your health, relationships, and productivity. During our conversation, we'll unpack the four quadrants of the play model and how it can help you assess your daily activities so you can incorporate more fun into your life. After the episode, be sure to check out the show notes for more information to help you dive deeper into the subject. Now on to the show. Mike Rucker, welcome to Grit Nation. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hey, thank you, Mike, for taking your time to be on my show today. I'm uh, really excited to introduce my audience to you and your new book, The Fun Habit. How Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. That's just a a fantastic title and a fantastic concept. How did you come up with the idea to write this book, Mike? Yeah, so it was unfortunately through a series of, um, you know, unfortunate events. Uh, For a long time, I had been studying positive psychology and really used those tools. And for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially a facet of psychology that looks Um, to help people through betterment, you know, where clinical psychology is really tools to help people mitigate deficits. The kind of school of thought around positive psychology was a set of tools to help people that are in sort of normal circumstances, um, you know, using that as an academic term, not as um, a pejorative, but, um, you know, a set of tools that can help people through betterment. And those tools had really been successful for me from about 2009 to 2016. Um, And in the rearview mirror, I now know that I was over optimizing for happiness, you know, I was really probably pushing the limits of what should have happened. Um, Because in 2016, my younger brother unexpectedly passed away from a pulmonary embolism. And then around the same time, these two things aren't correlated, but, um, I found out that I had advanced osteoarthritis. And up until that point, one of the main ways that I had mitigated stress and anxiety was running. And I was told that I could never run again. And so, yeah, I really got knocked on my butt, but I had always had this, you know, driven drive to be happy. And the more I tried to say, Hey, you know, these tools have always suited me. I'm going to try to, you know, get myself out of this mess Um, I became more and more unhappy. And so I knew something was wrong. And serendipitously around that same time, there was some emerging research that suggested that people that are overly concerned about optimizing for happiness, so not necessarily valuing happiness, wanting people to be happy and 
wanting people to flourish. There's, you know, we're not trying to villainize this here, but people that kind of always think about, you know, how can I be more happy? Um, what happens is they tend to see that gap between where they want to be. So happiness is out there on the horizon and where they are and subconsciously start to identify as being unhappy because, you know, happiness is something to be found and you essentially never find it. Right. The concept in psychology is called the hedonic treadmill. And so the kind of aha moment or awakening, you know, it happened slowly. It wasn't, um, something that sort of dawned on me, but what I came to realize digging both into the research and then my own self-experimentation is that instead of kind of trying to think about this all the time, regaining your agency and autonomy, especially as an adult, allows you to essentially have joy and delight in the moment because you kind of start to be deliberate about how you spend your time. And so what I found was I just kind of tried to reclaim an hour or two out of my week to do something that was going to light me up without really worrying about the outcome at all or any sort of evaluation of the activity, just finding things that I could enjoy in the moment. And over time, that starts to build equity, right? And so, you know, as long as you don't have a biological predisposition to depression so that your malaise or melancholy or whatever you know, term works for you with regards to sort of the despair you're in in the moment, you can start to index these joyful experiences where, you know, your emotions might not necessarily be in the positive, but you're really reconnecting with the things that bring you joy and delight. And so there's a whole host of positive outcomes that come from that. But unfortunately, as adults, we sort of start to habituate our lives and we forget that we have that type of control and, until someone sort of reminds us. Until you have that that rude awakening, like that's the, right. the passing yeah. of your brother or something that was significant to uh, that that made you happy, and so the the book, the fun habit, sounds like you know, uh, from my understanding, happiness isn't a destination; it's a journey, and along that journey, we should incorporate practices that are fun, that that take time out of our our day to day, the things that we are conscribed to do, and uh, and then literally make time to have. Fun. So, what what is the definition of fun? And you know, in layman's terms, how do we define fun? Yeah, in layman terms, I, just anything that you find pleasurable, right? And so, you know, the clinical definition we call it valence, which is essentially just a spectrum of are you enjoying yourself or are you not? And so, not necessarily hedonic pleasure, right? Like, but are you enjoying the things that you are doing in your life? And that's not to suggest that everything in your life should be joyful, right? I mean, that, again, kind of goes back to the trap that I talked about earlier, right? You know, in um, the literature, we call that toxic positivity. We know that if you're trying to optimize all the time towards pleasurable experiences, it can backfire. But so many of us don't have much of that at all in our lives. And so to be able to start organizing your time in a way that you're deliberately incorporating that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that has to be an experience of the self. You know, you could co-create those experiences with your partner or your children or whoever it is. Um, Cause you know, sometimes when it's first position, people are like, yeah, but I don't want to be selfish. Well, it's not necessarily a selfish endeavor. Um, quite the contrary, when you are finding fun in the things that you do, it oftentimes is quite contagious. So you're actually lifting everyone up with you, right. Rather than pulling them down. And so, um, 
you know, the, the real magic here is just how do you rediscover the things that light you up? And fortunately, the ways to do that are super, super simple, you know, once you're just kind of shown the way. Sure. And, and it seems like as a society, Americans seem to take things in excess. And one of the things that we tend to take in excess is our, our sort of uh, attitude towards work and that Puritan work ethic. And, you know, everything else is going to suffer because of this goal that I want to achieve. And I think as children, we sort of start off being pretty happy and having lots of fun. And then it seems at a certain point, you're just conditioned and you get on that treadmill. And and I, I apologize, the hedonic treadmill, is that is that based in the, in the, the, the Latin for hedonistic? Uh, so hedonic tone, again, sorry for using sort of words from psychology, but it it essentially means that, um, the concept there is that we know through various studies that we tend to have a set point of where we feel happy if we're not living a deliberate life. So, you know, uh, this was first kind of discovered through, studying lottery winners. And so some of the science here is a little bit sticky, but it has been replicated over and over again, where you can have these big windfalls in your life, you know, whether that's money or or something sort of exciting. And generally over time, if you're not deliberate about your goalpost, you know, to use kind of a football metaphor, then you will sort of revert back to where you were originally happy or sometimes even worse because your social norms have changed, you end up being less happy. The good news there, as just a quick aside, is that's also true if something really bad happens, right? Like, you know, uh, this this was studied in folks that had lost a limb, which is awful, right? When you first experience that, you know, you have to absorb the fact that, you know, there's going to be quite significant change in your life. And generally, you follow those people. And as long as they're in loving, supportive relationships, they become just as happy as they were before they lost their limb, right? So, um, there's evidence on both sides of the of the coin that um, we tend to fall back to this sort of level of happiness if we're not living life deliberately. And so what's important about that, right? What's important is that if you set the goalpost and you're like, you know, I know that this is what is going to lead to a joyful life, you can kind of move your life towards that direction and then really enjoy and embrace the fact that you have arrived and everything derived from that place becomes more joyful because you understand that you're, you kind of have control over your domain. You recapture that agency and autonomy instead of, to your point, kind of being led along by social norms or, you know, the considerations of meritocracy, um, you know, that where you're like, okay, so, you know, when, when do I cross this finish line? The, the sort of illusion is there is no finish line. So once you understand that, then you can start to really be mindful about how you're spending your time in the moment. And that's where true joy and delight lives. Sure. It sounds like it's a, it's a, it's a more holistic approach because again, you always seem to move the goalpost. I'm going to be happy when I, you know, graduate high school and I move away from home and I'm going to be happy when I, I get that uh, career that I've been after. And I'm going to be happy when I get the promotion within that career that I'm, I'm after. And I'm going to be happy when I marry that person that I've, you know, uh, very fond of it. Next thing is I'm going to be happy when I have, you know, children. And then we're going to be happy when we have grandchildren. And along the way, that goalpost continues to move down the line, but you never take the time to be present in the moment and enjoy the experiences that are happening right then and there is kind of how I'm reading that. Yeah, no, you're spot on. And the addition to that, why 
incorporating, you know, various aspects of things that are important to you and light you up and, you know, bring you joy is that if we don't create kind of this mosaic of life, the way the brain works is our habituated experiences. So if our life becomes really routine, we think about all of those routines as kind of a single memory. So this work is from Bronnie Ware and, and it's been replicated. We know that people that kind of look back at their life, if their life has been really routine, kind of just experiences is at one event and generally, you know, sort of ends their days with a lot of regret versus people who have experienced, it doesn't necessarily need to be a variety of things if they really love their craft. You know, a musician that spent 30 years becoming an amazing musician because they had a love for that, um, you know, interest. That's not necessarily bad. So that's not what I'm saying here. But for the most part, most of us like a variety of activities. And when we do that, we store all of those activities as individual events. So when we are older and sort of are able to really benefit from the act of reminiscing, we have a whole host of, you know, a whole catalog of really fun memories to look back at. But those need to be created, right? Unfortunately, for all of us, time is a finite resource. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't start tomorrow. But, you know, being mindful of how you spend your time um, is important to do as soon as possible. Absolutely. And again, just going back to some of the cultural differences, having lived and spent some time in Scandinavia in, in the country of Sweden, I know that the Danish are often ranked as one of the happiest countries on the on the face of the earth, that they even have a special word for it. I, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but I believe it's Hige. Uh, are you familiar with that? Yeah, word? yeah, yeah, yeah. The concept of Higgy and and that you know it's the small things in life that uh, that you take pleasure in in the moment that will truly add the the flavor and the depth and the richness of a meaningful uh, relationship with who you are and where you are at that present time and who you're with. So yeah, and you open the door for something that's really important. I think what becomes problematic when we sort of do live a life that's you know rooted in duty and so. That's not necessarily a bad thing if it's done episodically, but why you see these Nordic countries, you know, always rating on the top is one, they really value leisure, right? It's generally at least six weeks out of the year. Um, they have big maternity and paternity benefits. So, you know, unfortunately, that's not something that we can replicate here in the US, but it is something to at least pay attention to. And their social bonds, you know, they live in a lot more, um, in a culture where engaging with other people becomes a lot more important. Right. And so what can we do to sort of replicate that a bit here in the U S and especially for men, right. I mean, there was a really interesting article in the New York times this past week about how hard it is for men to maintain friendships and how you have to be more deliberate. And so that's where I really do advocate fun as a, as an important mechanism to connect with those friendships and mitigate loneliness, because we do know that people that are lonely, I mean, it's not a dotted line. It's a direct line to all sorts of, you know, terrible health outcomes, cardiovascular disease, you know, faster cognitive decline, depression and anxiety. So, you know, fun often is the glue that helps us feel connected to others. And for introverts, at least connected to something other than themselves, so they're not lonely. You know, oftentimes that's either spirituality or it could be a connection to nature or, again, for a hobbyist, someone who really is in love with their craft. But if you don't have those things in your life, then you kind of look at the world as being empty. And unfortunately, that 
you know, leads to some pretty negative outcomes, both psychologically and physiologically. And so before we, we get into the, some of those psychological and physiological, you know, manifestations of, of working too hard, not taking enough time to form a fun habit and, 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 and introduce joy and, and leisure into your life. Um, yeah, it, it again, it seems like it's very much the social constructs are leading that way. There was a, a famous book of some years ago called Bowling Alone. I believe Robert Putnam wrote the book and and how a lot of the social connectors that we used to have, whether it was church or, uh, you know, bowling leagues or softball leagues or or after school activities have all been stripped away. And now it seems as as a society and, and possibly as a world, we are more siloed. Uh, by the fact that we have these miniature computer screens in front of us that deliver just content to us right to our eyes and right to our ears. And, and you'll, I've, I've, you see it all the time. I'm guilty of it as, as, as much as anyone else of being in a group, but being completely alone, looking down at a screen, scrolling through, playing Wordle, checking the news, checking my emails. And it, and it does seem like a lot of the structures that we rely on for happiness have, have sort of you know turned outdated. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, no, you're spot on. I think uh, one of a really telling sort of visual representation of that is looking at any town square, you know, prior to the technology age where, you know, everyone was out there and that was sort of the social network, right? You were actually engaging with folks um, face to face. And we know there's a host of benefit that comes from that. Uh, You know, the main thing is, with regards to social media use, what we're really trying to do is make ourselves feel a little bit better through distraction, right? I mean, we're kind of either bored or, you know, again, not, um, not to geek out on scientific terms, but we're in this state of negative valence where we just want to sort of get out of that. And these tools, to some degree, have led to low-level addiction because we know that we'll get this little hit of dopamine, right? But that's not necessarily what makes us feel great. We, what we now know, just a quick science lesson here, is that dopamine does make us feel kind of excited. So it's sort of an interesting feeling and it does feel good. But the primary mechanism for dopamine with regards to at least an evolutionary standpoint was to make us be ready for some sort of excitement, right? So when dopamine really fills um, you, you know, becomes alive is when we anticipate something, not necessarily experience something. And so it's more of this neurochemical cocktail with an important component of oxytocin when we have pro-social behavior. And so it's almost like I, I use the metaphor of saccharin versus sugar, right? I mean, you, you know, we think we're kind of enjoying ourselves going through the, our social feed, um, but that's, it's really just saccharin sweet. It doesn't lead to anything fulfilling, And the best way to sort of understand that, if you don't believe me, is try and remember what you were looking at in social media like a week prior, right? I mean, the brain is not remembering it as important. Rather, now go have coffee with a good friend and try and remember the conversation. Like hands down, you're going to remember that. And so in the book, I use this metaphor of the nothing. You know, whenever we're kind of doing that and like, no, this is enjoyable, is it? Because, you know, again, try and think back. Because if it was important, your brain would remember it. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's not going to because it wasn't important. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll draw a poor analogy. I just came back from Las Vegas where I was doing some, some training. I'm not a gambler at all, but I, can, I, I just drew this, this, uh, um, this correlation that it's the difference between going to a casino and maybe pulling a slot machine handle and winning a dollar a day for a year 
or the one time you went in and you won 365 bucks on one pull of the handle. It's, it's a different feeling altogether. So we've identified a problem. People are having struggling for whatever reason with with finding happiness. And it, like we said, it can manifest itself in both physical and, and psychological ways. And some of the physical manifestations, I understand this is twofold. You know, without enough happiness, you've, you physically suffer. But with enough physical activity, it also helps promote better mood. So let's start there. Just the psychological benefits of saying being being active. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You kind of need to look at it as building blocks. And I think that's one of the reasons it kind of becomes problematic because any change in behavior is going to cause cognitive load, right? But what we know is that when we feel better over time, we end up increasing our vitality. So um, this work is called broaden build theory. Like once we expand our emotions and we sort of you know, let's say we're kind of just constantly moving from a four to a six on a zero through 10 scale through life, just kind of trying to get through. Once we're able to sort of understand that we have the ability to actually go out and have fun, enjoy ourselves, whatever that looks like, even if it's just a reframe, right? Um, you know, all the way up to really being mindful and deliberate about how, how you architect your entire week, you know, the entire 168 hours that you spend, whatever you do in that context, it starts to have this upward spiral effect. And one of the reasons that is, is that we've learned over the last 10 years, the way our brain works isn't necessarily cause and effect like we originally thought. It's really a predictive machine, right? And so, once we start to understand that we have a l- more control over our domain than, than we originally thought, then that allows us to predict that like, hey, you know, the world's actually okay. And if it's not, I have control to change it or at least more control than I thought. Obviously, there are going to be bad things that happen. You know, my brother's death is a perfect example that we have no control over, but we have a lot more control than we think. And so, you know, sometimes this is... Uh, you know, talked about in the terms of a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, we right. can kind of just think things happen to us, or we can think that, yes, things do happen to us, but we can kind of control the way we respond to those, which will have an uplifting effect on both our physiological well-being, which we've already discussed, and obviously our psychological well-being as well. Right. Good, good stuff there. So let's talk about what we can do. Making fun a habit. You have an, an acronym called PLAY. So what does PLAY stand for? So PLAY is an acronym that stands for um, pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. And to just kind of give a quick summary of that, it's, it's just four different ways to look at how you're spending your time. And so in the context of the PLAY model, pleasing are things that we can do any day, you know, playing with our animals, reading a good book, you know, fun is as unique as the individual. So you would kind of decide what's a pleasing activity for you. But the main construct there is that you can generally do it whenever you want. You know, it's easy enough to execute that you can do it whenever. But there is some intention to it. It's not a passive, just sitting down on the couch, watching TV, flipping channels and uh, type of interaction. That's exactly it? it. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily here to villainize media. I think it still could be, you know, if you loved watching 
Breaking Bad with your partner and you guys were actively engaging in it and talking about the topic or, you know, maybe you're in a partnership where you don't talk during the show, but you unpack it afterwards. For me, I I would say that show was lost. You know, I I don't really watch TV much more, um, but I watched that with a group of friends and I wouldn't say that was a passive activity because we love, you know, the philosophical components of it. But if you're plopping down on the couch after a hard day and just channel surfing, and then I was to ask you seven days later, like, hey, what what were you watching on television? Again, I feel like that's a good test of, to your point, a, a fairly passive activity that's not contributing to your well-being. Um, so, yeah, you're exactly right. It's something to easy, easily execute and not something we do passively or kind of mindlessly, you know, habitually. The living quadrant are things that really light us up. So they take some energy to do, but they are sort of important to make sure you're indexing somewhat throughout the year. So that can be mastering a new skill. For some folks, it can be, you know, vigorous exercise that leads to, you know, some sort of uh, outcome that's important to them. For some, it could be a spiritual practice, you know, a true spiritual practice, Um but whatever it is, it, it, it really lights you up, potentially leads you to moments of awe and wonder, um, but isn't something that you can necessarily do all the time. Uh, agonizing are things that we have to do, um, you know, that don't that take a lot of work and don't bring much pleasure. And so why they're important to identify is certainly, again, we're not suggesting that you can completely architect those out of your life. But oftentimes, once people identify those activities, there are easy ways to either improve them or to potentially outsource them in creative ways. And so in the book, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, something that requires money. There are a lot of creative ways to sort of, you know, figure out a different way to approach those activities that we just hate to do and drain us. And I think in the, I can't yeah. remember, Mike, was it in the book or a podcast where I might have heard you on where you talked about the the, the act of bathing your children was one <laughs> of those agonizing experiences, not just for you and your your wife, but for the kids as well. And you found a, a creative solution to to outsource that and kind of run an end game around it so that you could enjoy more. So how did you work? How did you do that? Yeah, I, I, I do bring that example up quite a bit because I think it's one of those ones where people get sort of the, you know, one of the crux of, uh, of what can hold us up. Right. And so the story goes, um, my wife and I over time just hated bathing our kids for whatever reason they didn't enjoy the experience. We kept trying to, you know, recreate it and it, it never worked for us. And it got so bad to the point that we kind of waited to the end of the night and, and sort of eyeballed each other to see who would be the martyr, you know, and, I think they playfully sort of realized that it had become destructive and, and, you know, poked at us even more. Yeah. So it had just become a disaster and we weren't in a financial position where we could afford a nanny, but some of our friends did. And so we would lament like, Oh, you know, like they don't even have to deal with this. And so long story short, we were like, you know, why don't we just get a babysitter to do it? And at first that sounded really unusual, right? Because what an intimate act to just bring in someone for a couple hours. But at the end of the day, that's not really any different than the nanny doing it, right? And so we kind of got over that hump. Like, yeah, it sounds kind of weird saying it out loud, but how is it any different? And th- and this is what we can afford. We can afford a caregiver for two to three hours a week. And we hired this amazing person. Her name's Caitlin. 
and she turned it into a complete game. These kids had so much fun with her. You know, we generally had her for an extra hour. And what we did is we replaced this agonizing activity for my wife and I, and we ended up going out and having dinner those three nights a week that Caitlin would come in to bathe them. And so here's this huge win, right? Four people that really weren't enjoying their time together um, and turned it into two kids that just had so much fun with Caitlin and me and my wife being able to connect in a way we hadn't for quite some time. And then the after effect wasn't just that, you know, we all had more fun in that instance. My wife and I came back and we were better versions of ourselves. And then we also learned from Caitlin, right? So now that the experience had kind of been defanged, we were able to have more fun with our kids because, you know, we picked up on some of, you know, her skill set to make it more enjoyable. And the whole thing just became an upward spiral. So the reason I like that story is it's a great anecdote of how, you know, something that was just burning us all out has now become this really additive experience and really didn't cost us all that much money. Um, but I do want to circle back to, you know, what you brought up prior and that is yielding, which is, are the things that if we're not mindful of really are just soul sucking. Right. And oftentimes when people do these time audits, they are so surprised about how much time they are actually spending on their phone so much so now that it's much easier for us to do that, right? Because Android devices and iPhones have a wellness check where you can go in there and see how much time you've been on Instagram and Facebook. And if it's over two or three hours, I would suggest to you, you figure out where those hours lie and figure out something a little bit more fun for you to do. And anybody that kind of engages in this self-experimentation almost always is like, how did I not do this sooner? Because I'm at what a great piece of low hanging fruit to sort of change something that's not really that fun and to, you know, time that you can uh, spend on something that does really light you up. So yield on that. And when you say two to three hours, I assume you mean uh, two to three hours of social media scrolling. Correct. Uh, Sorry, during, during if I wasn't more clear. Yeah. Yep, that's right. I'm sure for some people listening, it may even be two to three hours a day, which <laughs> seems like a horrible time suck. So, Well, and it's quite spectacular when you look at those Pew studies about, you know, if, I mean, if they're true, kids are now spending five hours a day on a screen, which is... Um, you know, something we need to course correct. I, there's a lot of dialogue around that, but it only seems to be getting worse. Um, you know, especially with the advent of TikTok, which is even more addictive than Instagram and Facebook. Um, so these are, you know, these are things that n- not only adults should think about, but also understand how they're impacting their children for sure. So yielding, and then, you know, some, some tangibles that we can kind of, uh, utilize You're you're talking about a metric, I think that says, uh, how many hours a day or how many minutes a day should you out of the 164 that are allotted to us, 164 hours a week that are allotted to us, how much should we devote towards our fun habit? So this research comes out of UCLA, the uh, professor's name is Cassie Holmes. She calls it the Goldilocks spot. But when you look at, and this is a generalization, so I always hate giving like blanket prescriptions, but I think it's a good framework that for most people, they should be able to commandeer at least two to five hours out of their day. And so to me, that sounds like a lot. Again, this is sort of, you know, based on um, a lot of data, but I would suggest, okay, so we'll accept that as a Goldilocks spot, but why not just try to commandeer one or two hours out of your week, knowing that two to five is possible and just sort of play with that and, and see how it feels. 
And the bumper rails that I'll put on that, though, is that change at the beginning is sort of difficult, right? And so I would suggest whatever you do in that regard when you're switching out activities is at least give it two to three weeks. Because by that time, once you sort of feel comfortable with the new activity, you'll start to you know, understand that really is contributing to your vitality. But so one of the things that I, uh, you know, I find fascinating, um, but is a true phenomenon is a lot of adults don't think they can do things on quote unquote school nights, right? Like, so, you know, a couple might have really enjoyed dancing together, but for whatever reason, that sort of been engineered out of their life. And I'll suggest, well, you know, why don't you pick that up on a, like a random Tuesday? Oh, well, you know, can't do things on Tuesdays because we're too busy. It's like, you know, it's just this common kind of social norm. And what they don't realize is obviously you can do that. And once, you know, someone does engage in whatever it is, you know, dancing is just a hypothetical, but whatever that, that thing is for you, one, you benefit from connecting with others, right, around a like-minded activity, but two, just getting active again ends up being invigorating rather than what you thought it would be, which is, you know, sort of just the hassle to do. But the first one or two weeks for a lot of people, it still feels like a hassle until they habituate, you know, that routine. Cause again, for whatever reason, we feel really comfortable with, you know, when we habituate our behavior, because it does make things a little bit easier, right? So, you know, the, the amount of energy to kind of, you try something new for a lot of folks, you know, th- that's the hump they need to get over. And that making it a habit is uh, does take time and, and, like you say, habituation. And I think just going back to what we talked about earlier, that Puritan work ethic, well, if I'm having fun, you know, I'm not doing my part, I'm not working hard enough, I'm not, you know... Um, putting my part in and, and there must be something wrong. I feel, you know, I think we oftentimes sort of, uh, demonize fun as being lazy. Oh, you're just, you're having fun, you know, and it's, it's become the social currency that we use now that we trade. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm busy as hell. You know, I'm always so busy and it's, and, and it's unfortunate. And I work with some people like this that, you know, they, they hopefully are, enjoying that ride. It's great to be busy. It's great in in my case to be improving people's lives through education and and through mentorship, but not at the expense of your own health and well-being. You're not going to be very effective at your job if you yourself are are not happy and and, um, at ease with your position. Yeah. The way that I often frame it is, I remember it was only 10 years ago where that same phenomenon happened with sleep. Like, oh man, I only got four hours of sleep last night, you know, like up working late, you know, and we did, you know, there was a lot of sort of internal pride, you know, to the grind. And now um, sleep hygiene, it's been so explored that I think, you know, even the most machismo person is identified that if they don't get sleep, they're going to fall down quickly and not be their best selves we're quickly finding that out, you know, I I label it as fun, but just leisure in general, making sure that there is a transition ritual between your work and your ability to recapture your time has almost as meaningful impact as, you know, sleep deprivation. So I think, you know, my hope is that in the next few years, we look at fun deprivation the same way we look at sleep deprivation. Because again, Remember, it wasn't long ago where uh, the sleep deprived were celebrated. And so to your point, you know, there are still people that uh, that aren't living a joyful life that wear that as a badge of honor and don't understand that that's, you know, it's really wearing away at their vitality. And and the paradox here is we now know from a host of different studies that the people that 
live a joyful life or willing or have the ability to produce more in, in most facets of life. So if you're looking at your life with regards to contribution, whether, you know, you're working for a nonprofit or, you know, you're working in trade, you're likely to get more work done if you are, you know, making sure that you guard your time for renewal in, in a way um, that allows you to be your best self. And I, we're discovering that quickly. So, so people who, who find your book, what do you hope they're going to take away from reading uh, the, the fun habit? Yeah, I really just want to have people live a more fun and joyful life for all the reasons that we discussed over the last hour. So none of these tools are earth shattering, right? They're really just reminders that in our adult life, we do need to take a little bit off the table for ourselves. And that that's not a selfish act, that when we do that, we're able to give ourselves more to others and also to have better impact on the world at large. And so the fact that, you know, we have these huge rates of burnout, loneliness, and to some degree, you know, especially with children, boredom can really, you know, if we reorganize our time, we can solve all of that. You know, for me, since my audience is adults, it really is burnout. And the fact that so many of us are burnt out, but we don't understand why, if I could reverse that through just, you know, a book of simple tools and have an impact in that way. Uh, I, w- I would be really happy to answer your question, quite frankly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Hey, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so the book's available for pre-order now. I'd, I'd be grateful for anyone that pre-ordered it. Um, and my work is available at my website, michaelrecker.com. And I play a little bit on social media, on Instagram, um, under the wonder of fun. All right. Well, I'll make sure to add that to the show notes. And if I'm not mistaken, your book comes out in the beginning of January of 2023. Isn't that correct? Correct. January 3rd. Yep. All right. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you again, Mike, for taking your time to be on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, my goodness. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today has been Dr. Mike Rucker, author of The Fun Habit. To learn more about Mike and his work, check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at www.gritnationpodcast.com. Till next time, this is Joe Cadwell thanking you for wanting to know more today than you did yesterday. So speaking of finding the light, fixing unhappy, before we began recording, we had a, a conversation. You said you had visited my fair city of Portland, Oregon back during the summer, and you found joy, I found out, it wasn't in your book, <laughs> by being part of the largest dinosaur gathering uh, <laughs> in, in the summer of t- 2022 for those listening to us in the future. So what can you tell us about that, Mike, and how did that bring you joy, and what brought you to, into that uh, that large group of inflatable dinosaurs? <laughs> so I think... Uh, one of the things that I did back in 2007 that kind of uh, was a prelude to the fun habit was committed to doing something uh, extraordinary every three months. And so it's just something that I do. I try to find something that's, you know, really interesting and fascinating, uh, you know, whether that's developing a new skill or going to a new place or being invited to break a world record um, and making sure that I, you know, again, in the spirit of the living quadrant, you know, do something spectacular like that, just so that I have, you know, a host of really interesting memories to fall back on. That just happened to be the anniversary of Brian's death too. So it was even more meaningful because I know he would have been there with me if, uh, if he could. So, you know, I kind of held his spirit with me while I was dressed up in a plastic T-Rex costume. <laughs>